Open your Bibles uh, with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Pastor Brent, the last couple weeks, has done a great job uh, teaching through uh, 1 Peter. Uh, the first week, uh, he had uh, an evening to prepare or, or a day to prepare. And then this last week, he had some time, a run-up time to that point um, leading up to it. But uh, I was very grat- grateful for his willingness to step up and to lead in that capacity. However, when you come back from a period away, you know, you're hoping that you get, you know, the Lord provides you with like a uh, runway that you can really take off back into preaching at a church, something that's like encouraging and challenging and like, you know, a little bit of, of, of fuzzies and stuff along the way. But uh, providentially, he has me landing in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, um, that begins with, likewise, wives be subject to your husband or submit to your husband. Um, super popular idea in our day and age today. Um, super fun and easy thing to tackle. Um, but that's one of the reasons why we preach through books of the Bibles here is because it forces us to talk about difficult subjects and try to shed light on God's truth in this. Um, the likewise is in view of the previous verses in chapter 2 when it's referring to this idea of submitting to authority that is placed over you ultimately because you are free in Jesus Christ. And because we're free in Jesus Christ, those who might be oppressive are actually the ones who are enslaved. The reality is all of us are enslaved to something or someone. All of us are. Paul even talks about that if you're um, in, in Romans, he talks about you're either a slave to sin and death or you're a slave to life and righteousness. We're all submitting to something or someone. And I often ask you, who or what do you worship? Who or what do you give your mind's attention, your heart's affection, your life's loyalty to? Who or what do you worship? Because that is your master. Whatever you allow to control you, masters over you. And and whatever controls you and masters over you becomes the gospel that your life preaches. All of our lives preach a gospel. We preach a message of good news. And the question I I pose before you and I continue to pose before you is what gospel is your life preaching? And today, even more specifically, I would ask you the question, what gospel is your marriage preaching? Because as we'll see later, In a cross-reference in Ephesians chapter 5, we'll see that ultimately marriage is utilized by God as an illustration of his glory with his relationship with his bride, the church. Now, I want you to know, whenever I teach on marriage or do a marriage series, we have people that just don't miss. They're some of the highest watched videos because people want to be less miserable in their marriage. And most people who are married today are situationally happy. If things are going well or going their way, then they might have some joy with the other person, but their joy is largely contingent on the performance of their partner. And so my hope today is to not just tell you, hey, go have a date night, because people love hearing about that. Wives love hitting their husbands like, he, pastor said have a date night, honey. We have to have date nights, or uh, we have to have family meetings to communicate, and we've got to work on healthy communication and conflict resolution. Conflicts need to help us move forward. That conflict produces intimacy that leads to better worship, right? We want to hear about those things, and we talk about budgeting and, and financial stewardship, and we want to talk through all these things to make our marriage happier, but the problem is you can build that beautiful home, but if the foundation underneath it is faulty, it falls apart when the storm comes. And so I believe to be faithful to the text that God has brought us today, we have to begin talking through the foundation of marriage. And ultimately, a happy and healthy marriage begins theologically. Theology, the knowledge of God. The one who created marriage and has specific intent for marriage is the one that we must begin acknowledging and understanding. 
And, and my whole point, and those of you who've been any sort of marriage coaching with me or counseling have heard me say this over and over again, an increasing trust in Jesus is key to a joy-filled marriage. An increasing trust in Jesus is key to a joy-filled marriage. Now, some of you are disappointed because you knew I was teaching on marriage. You hoped that you would come today and I would fix your spouse be that third-party mediator that brings conviction with the help of the Holy Spirit to fix that person. But more importantly, before we even talk about your spouse, I want to address you. For those of you who are not yet married or have been married, we are all for marriage. We should be if we're Christian. Even if we're not married ourselves, we are for the sanctity and covenant of biblical marriage. The beauty of life-creating man-woman coming together as one bearing fruit of life. And that's the whole point, that the roles of men and women begin with the creation narrative. God created men and women in his image as image bearers. Therefore, the idea of chauvinism or extreme feminism both pervert that view. Extreme feminism stipulates that women are independent and better than men. Chauvinism stipulates that men are over and domineering women, Both are unbiblical. The creation narrative stipulates solely that man and woman created equally in the image of God to come together to complement each other to reflect wholly who God is. In fact, no life can be created apart from that unity. And before sin entered in, that unity was free and unadulterated, mutually respected, honoring Godward, and then sin creeps in and has perverted perverted substantially these roles. In fact, I would argue that roles have often been either neglected or they've been abused, and they haven't been addressed. I believe the Bible teaches a complementarian view of men and women. Now, not complementary. Some people think complementary with an I in the middle, like, oh, boo, you're so good, compliment. That's not what it means. The word complement, the word with the E, is derived from the word complement with an E that completes or makes perfect. Some of you are aware of that movie called Jerry Maguire. If you've never seen it in its entirety, you're going to see, if you've ever watched Lego Batman, you've seen the part I'm going to talk about where Tom Cruise tells uh, Renee Zellweger that she completes him. And in Lego Batman, if you haven't seen it, it's hilarious because they all bust out laughing every time, like a, like a, like a, a guffaw, bahahaha, like they, they laugh when it says that. But in the very truest form in the covenant of marriage, that is intended to be true. That we're meant to come together as two parts and by God's blessing through the covenant of marriage to become one whole. And if one part of that whole is greater than the other, it destroys the whole thing. We have to understand men and women are created equal, both in value and in dignity. Both are created and are image bearers of God equally. Both are unique in how they're created, even down to our chromosomes. And we have to understand that heaven will be complementarian, that there is one king, Jesus, and there is one bride, the church. And the Bible says that we are co-heirs with Christ and that we are complementing and effectively communicating the truth of who he is, subordinate in form and fashion to our king, Jesus. 
And so when you talk about the concept of be subject or submit to, we have to come with an understanding for those who are Christian that submission is in view of our mutual submission wholly to Christ. And you have to begin there. Turn with me, if you will, to Romans 8.29. I just want to build some context, give a running start to build this case as we talk through the idea of submission and honor and respect and love. Romans 8.29, the Apostle Paul is teaching on the purpose in and through the predestination, through the foreknowledge of God, for the purpose of what? He says this, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed, what? To the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And really, the word brethren, brothers and sisters. He might be the firstborn. So, so the purpose through our predestined election into Christ is that we are called out of sin, which leads to death, into a life that is given righteousness through Christ. In that righteous living, we're then have a purpose in all of its unique for, or all of it's the same for us all, to be conformed to the image of Christ, to become more like Jesus. That's the aim of this life as we're going, and that glory will be fully realized once we're restored and redeemed with him in eternity. But understanding that, that role that each of us, our husband, the wife, are unified in this goal, ideally in a Christian marriage, brings in a better context for understanding what functional subordination, big term. I remember hearing that in the seminary, and I was like, that just has a ring to it. Functional subordination. And I would use it in everything that wasn't even applicable. My steak will functionally subordinate to my knife and fork. And Stephanie's like, I don't think that's how that's used. But this idea of Jesus equal with the Father, equal with the Spirit, takes a role of submission under the Father. Look with me in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. And this is for the men and the women who are followers of Jesus. If you're here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, and you're thinking through how men have historically treated women throughout the ages, um, your, history, um, your history does justify any biases you may hold to this concept or idea. The goal, though, isn't to refute sin and justify sin. The goal is to cast vision for a redeemed life together. Because that's our ultimate goal in Christ, is to have a redeemed life together. And so this Philippians 2, 5 through 11, isn't just for guys and isn't just for girls. Um, it's for y'all. When he says, have this mind among yourselves, in Texas, we, we, we translate that word to y'all. Have this mind among y'all. You ready? Have this mind among y'all, which is yours, y'all's, in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, became a curse. Therefore, because of this, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see what happens. Jesus submits himself to the Father. The Father then responds in exaltation. 
and honor. This subordination to the Father, Jesus being a servant leader. He was a servant to God and a leader of man and mankind, coming alongside, leading them as a humble servant of the Father in heaven. Taking that posture of humility, while our world would say that is a posture of weakness, is actually a position of profound strength. After all, because as we go near to those things, we become nearer to Christ. In Philippians 3, the Apostle Paul goes further and said, he does all these things, pursues all these things. Why? So that he might know Christ. He might share in his suffering and even share in his death. Why? So he might know the power of the resurrection. His profound vision of knowing, loving, and submitting to Christ is the foundation of no longer holding on to, to, to this rights that he feels like he has because he's already inherited it all. And so Brent has done a great job um, last, last week, especially talking about servants and masters and, and, and submitting to emperors and, and governors and, and to living in a way like that. And with that in mind, he, uh, was it two, yep. So he says this, verse 16, so second, or first Peter 2, 16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Those who are free are liberated from the limitations of their perceived rights to live into the full inheritance that we've been granted through Jesus himself. And so we must take that contextual understanding of this freedom and submission of Jesus to the Father because Jesus, though as a servant leader, served the Father, led the people, was ultimately the one he was submitting to was the one that honored and exalted him. And so I hope to build that idea as we go into 1 Peter 3, 1 Peter 3, verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Some translations say submit to, be in, under subjection to your own husbands. Notice it doesn't say, ladies, be subject to all husbands. It doesn't say be subject to all men. So Peter's actually going quite countercultural in the Roman Empire. He's, uh, women were viewed in the, by the Greco-Roman world, and even in, to an extent, in functionally and operationally in Judaism at the time, as lesser. Peter's actually reapportioning that view of equality before our Creator. He says, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of your hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be hidden um, and uh, be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is God, in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. There's a lot there. But I want to begin with this pull-out understanding, building from chapter 2 into this place, the first thing is this, is that the greatest source of joy is not your spouse, it's Jesus. 
Now, it sounds like, well, you're a pastor, of course you're going to say that. That's, that's the brand you're peddling, and this isn't no brand to peddle. It's the truth that's been given and applied and realized. The greatest source of your joy is never going to be found in your spouse. Even if your spouse became perfect according to your terms and did everything you wanted, that will never be the medicine that your heart requires. That is never the source of healing that ultimately our deep soul satisfies. It may close off one area of stress or area of concern, but that's never intended to be your ultimate hope. In fact, if your spouse was perfect, it would actually become idolatry because you would be more hopeful in him or her than you would in God himself. And so we have to understand that that's the foundation that we must adjust our expectations, rightly so. Listen, I've said this to you before. I recently taught a series after Easter called Better Together. And one of the things I said to you very clearly, I made you turn to your spouse and say this, you're a sinner. So am I. And while we are no longer fully identified by our sins, we are saints that happen to sin still, that struggle with that, and why we've been made new, we're not yet perfect and won't be until eternity. So you've married an imperfect person, and so hoping in that person to bring you perfect source of joy is perfectly flawed. Your spouse will never complete you completely. We were intended to bring a form of completion to this world as a display of God's creative, uh, creative joy and, rest, and restoration, but it was never meant to fully restore us. And guess what? Often dissatisfaction in marriage is rooted in our dissatisfaction with Jesus. Even if you look at your spouse and the mistreatment that your spouse has brought, oftentimes, if we're honest with ourselves, we feel disappointed with the Lord because of the disappointment with our spouse. If they're letting you down, there's a correct connection that I, I sense a lot. Now, when I ask you if you're a follower of Jesus and you've sat in my office or I've sat in your home talking about marriage and I say, hey, is there any chance that perhaps you're upset with Jesus because of what's going on here and y'all know the right answer? No. No, man, I love the Lord. I just wish my husband was him. Or my wife was him. I just, if my spouse was perfect, my life would be better. And, and let me diffuse that bomb. If your spouse was perfect, you'd have a much bigger issue going on. Because of the love and intimacy that husbands and wives share. If that person was perfect, idolatry would be even more rampant. And some of you have idolatry through fantasy or through romantic comedies or through fiction or through other more pornographic means of what your ideal marriage should be. That's destructive because that's acting. That's not real. Stop hoping for a perfect spouse because all you're building is a prettier idol that will destroy your soul. And so to deconstruct that, to talk about wives, women submitting to your husband, ladies, I would struggle being a feminist if I was a female. Just historically knowing how women were treated and devalued over history, even recently with the Me Too movement, just de degradation and devalued and forced to just be independent on their own and it breaks my heart. Being a dad of two daughters makes it very difficult. The idea of, of like, I just pray. I pray often for my, my daughter's husbands. One's 12, one's six. I pray often for those guys 
that they don't marry idiots. I really hope that because I'll have to sit there with the scriptures open and in my flesh struggle to say, be subject to your husband, even if he's not acting like a believer. Why? Because God's worth it. Because God's worth it. And that leads me to my second point. Submission is about Jesus and his worth. Submission is about Jesus and his worth. Ladies, I want to be candid with you. Your sinful husband will never really be worthy of your submission. If we're we're going on value and and, and worthiness, that just, you'll be waiting forever. If that's a standard, husbands, your wives will never be worth laying down your life for your wife as Christ did the church, like that kind of sacrifice. Now, machismo might lead us to, I'll take a bullet for her. Great, okay, well, for all the people that are getting assaulted with handguns here in the United States right now in our homes, um, good for you, guy. But will you bear with her in love? Will you sit with her in infertility? Will you sit there confused, not knowing what kind of cry is going on right now? Happy cry, mad cry, confused cry. I don't know why cry. Will you be predisposed to look for ways how you can bless your wife rather than require of her? The, the shift of thinking is because Jesus is worth it because of what he's accomplished for us, because of the sacrifice that he gave freely. When he had no sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21, one of my life verses, for God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that through him we might become the righteousness of God. Our righteousness given to us is not even based on our good days of performance. Our righteousness is founded solely in God's deposit in our lives through his son Jesus. And so when you look at Philippians 2 and you look at the idea of Christ as our example, then the concept of submission for husbands as servant leaders and wives as submitting to their husbands, helping, coming alongside of, encouraging and and, and helping, is less offensive. And man, I want to say this. I've said it to you before. Be careful not to sin by being difficult for your wife to submit to. Be careful not to sin by being difficult to submit to. And two of the primary ways we become difficult to submit to is through chauvinism, where we act like we're the king and they're lesser, or passivism, where we don't take up any role of leadership or helm and abdicate, I mean give over with no involvement, everything to our wives. Look, I married a woman that completely could run the show without me. Back when I used to travel full-time and speak, there would be days on end. She and Braylon would be on, on their own. There's times when I've gone to Kenya, she and the girls are on their own. She is highly capable. And to be honest with you, I'm just confessing privately between you and the three people who watch the online video. To be honest, the idea of her submitting to me terrified me, and at times still does, because that's a heavy burden. When Paul talks about washing your wife with the water of the word and presenting her blameless to the Father, that's a heavy load. And I'm aware of my unworthiness, and I'm aware of yours, guys. I'm aware of it. But that's what God calls us to, to know him more. Submission is about Jesus and his worth. Healthy headship and submission begins with mutual submission to Jesus. Now, there is a caveat that what if one of your spouses 
isn't following Jesus or isn't obeying Jesus. It goes back both for the ladies and for the guys, and, and Paul expounds on this in 1 Corinthians 7, but he goes back to say, so, even, so that even if some, this is the first part of verse 1, so that even if some, the, some of the husbands, do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. That doesn't mean I advocate for ladies just to be a floor mat, to be beaten or physically harmed by any means, or emotionally abused. It's okay to have boundaries put in place. I'm not advocating that, that, there's, that submission means that you just take whatever comes your way. But it's interesting the few things that, that, that Peter did write, that when they see you're respectful and your pure conduct. I've known several guys who were walking in sin who repented and were restored to Jesus and to their spouse. And what amplified and what helped wasn't the wife taking upon the role of Holy Spirit or the husband taking on the role of Holy Spirit. What helped was a trust in the Lord that through prayer and maybe fasting and in hoping and encouraging towards the right things and not participating in the broken things, there was a restoration that began taking place in the hearts and the minds of the spouse. And that's easier to be done in the context of community rather than isolation on your own and hiding. One thing we say here at Christ Community Church a lot is that it's okay to not be okay. It's just not okay to stay not okay because Jesus has made everything okay. And with that restorative hope that we have in Christ, ladies, the charge of submitting to your husband, being subject to your husband, is less of a chauvinistic put down and more of an empowering spirit saying, this is your hope because Christ is is your king. But then he goes on to a more touchy subject, I think. He says, do not your adorning be external. The braiding of your hair, now don't look around and see, okay, what ladies have braided their hair because we're going to have to have an accountability session afterwards. You're allowed to braid your hair, ladies. It's okay. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit in which God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And are you her ch not her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening? So, I will say this, ladies, it is appropriate to care for yourself. It's appropriate to, I'm not anti-makeup, I'm not anti-pantsuit, uh, I'm not, I'm not anti-dresses you know, dresses or skirts, like, you know, that, that's your thing. I'm not very fashionable myself. Um, I struggle in the area of fashion or concern of fashion. Um, but it, it, he's, Peter's not saying, hey, like, don't care, give up. But I think a lot, a lot of temptation, and I live in a house full of, of, of girls and females and women, and grew up with a sister, grew up with a mom, um, there's a lot of pressure on you to look certain ways, to be acceptable in the world. And quite honestly, you could have the Botox and the plastic surgery and all those different things, nice clothes, good jewelry, and be a wreck on the inside, but as long as that wreck doesn't pour out onto other people, they don't really care. 
And so this reorientation is really more about your soul before a holy and wonderful God who loves you and restored you saying, hey, as much effort and concern that we put towards our external beauty, let's reapportion and rebudget that energy towards our cultivation of our soul in Christ. Because that is a better investment that yields greater fruit and produces better joy. I've never met a woman who's like, you know what, I, I've shown up. I am gorgeous, and from here on out, I will become even more outwardly beautiful into my 90s. They have not heard of gravity. Now, yes, you can nip, tuck, squeeze in botulism in your face, whatever you want to do, and look surprised all the time. But ultimately, at the end of the day, what is winsome, what is gravitational, what is a pull, is a heart that is affectionate for God and the things of God. And people look at me and they look at my wife and say, there must be a God if she married you. (laughs) Or you're really funny. Or something. And I do delight in the wife of my youth, but I would say that ultimately my hope, while I do enjoy and still visually appeal to my wife, my, my longing for her is far more of the emotional, spiritual, encouraging, and friendship than it ever has been before. And what is uniquely binding to me is her affection for Christ and her miraculous faithfulness and kindness towards me over the years. Now, I know a lot of you, and so the gentle, quiet spirit is actually going to be harder than the braiding thing for for some of you ladies. You're like, I can drop the braids, but the quiet bit? Let's think more in terms of application than the tool at hand. Because some of us men need wives who are concise and quick and can point out details. Because for guys like me, I'm a big picture thinker. And so having a wife that is detail-oriented and can point out flaws and can speak up is not a curse, it's a blessing. Having women on our staff at the church who can speak up is a blessing, is a gift. But when Steph comes to me and notices something, because I'm less insecure than I was, still insecure... But when she speaks up and points something out, I know there's a foundation of trust that she's coming because she cares. And because she cares and there's that foundation of trust, we can have healthy conflict and come to commitment and agree upon the next steps and then we get the results that we're hoping for. And yes, I stole that from Patrick Lencioni's five dysfunctions of the team. Because your number one team is your marriage. And if there's not a foundation of trust, then that needs to be rebuilt because the foundation of trust in the gospel of Jesus is where we get towards greater joy and healing in him. Ladies, having a quiet spirit is ultimately more about the intention of what you say than what you say at all. Are you always speaking up because you want to be right, or you want to be in control, or you want to have power, or are you speaking up because you come from a place of genuinely wanting to help? One of the things that I've shared with you all, I think back during the Better Together, a turning point in our marriage, we've been married 17 years together, almost 23. A turning point in our marriage that came for me is Stephanie was pointing out an area that I can improve on. She was absolutely right. And what she said is, Casey, I'm not just coming after you. I'm refining us because it's us. When you have a problem, I have a problem. And not that it wasn't like, you bother me. You better fix it. It's like, hey, it's our issue. If you have an issue, it's my issue too. And I want to fight with you that issue. I want to stand with you in that issue. I want to find liberation and freedom in Christ over that issue. 
And so when there's this humility and mutual submission to Christ and um, this help that comes alongside the husband and the husband then goes, the, the one verse for the, late, for the guys is actually pretty deep and pretty heavy. And ladies, when you come alongside, it's not, it's not that you have to be volume quiet. I have, I have friends that, are, uh, that have a Latino family, and they, I went over for dinner one night, and there was like 85 conversations going on. They were yelling at each other, and I was like, will they stay married? I'm not sure. Like, like, will they be friends afterwards? And they were done, and they hugged each other, gave each other a high five, and then moved on to something else. I was like, I don't know what just happened. I mean, I had opinions, but I couldn't hang. This idea of refining each other and spurring each other on a brother and sister in Christ who are intimately bound through the covenant of love and marriage. Because ultimately we have to understand this, ladies, the economy of the wife's beauty is based upon what God values. You are actually living for an audience of one, and it's not your husband. And guys, you are living for an audience of one, and it's not your wife. There's a book called When... People are big and God is small by Dr. Ed Welch. And he, this favorite saying that I read three years ago, he said this, you can sometimes please some people or you can most of the time please God. And so when we're so worried about our outward appearance and the facade and the act and the masks and everything else, we're trying to please a whole bunch of people that one, either don't care or number two, are very fickle. And they'll bear with you when things are good and disappear when things are bad. And so what Peter's saying is, hey, let's invest in those things that matter to God and allow you to mature past your joy being solely contingent on how you look on the outside and be more concerned about what's happening on the inside. Because ultimately, Christ is your beauty. Christ is your end hope, your righteousness, and your life. Verse 7, likewise, in the same way, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. I tell you this all the time, remove condemnation with curiosity. Guys, I don't know about you, I have a tendency to want to fix things. And if I've been having to fix things all day long and I come home and have to fix home too, it's like, come on. That's the wrong way of thinking. Rather than coming alongside over it and fixing it, come alongside and enter into it. And as we enter into it, we ask questions, we're curious, we help, we guide, at times we speak truth and love. And we bear with each other in love. It says, live with your wives in an understanding way. This was revolutionary during this time. Take time, know her, understand her. And it's okay to say, I don't really understand, but I do love you and I'm with you. Living with her in an understanding way, why? Or, or, or how? Showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel. Now, I know some of, I know ladies that like, are bodybuilders and could probably bench press me. But by and large, the way that God created us, by and large, is that men are physically stronger, and I would argue are called to protect their families. To protect and provide are some of the ways that men can lean into the creative mandate. Weaker doesn't mean intellectually weaker. It doesn't mean spiritually weaker. It doesn't mean devalued. It doesn't mean lesser. What it means is that we come alongside understanding. We were hanging out. Steph I met Stephanie on Friday at the Home Depot to get a pot for her succulents. She's really, her and the girls have really found a plant they can't kill. Um, nearly cactuses. Um, and, uh, you know, and we were hanging out talking like that. And 
I was like, man, it's really cool to hang out. And she's like, hey, can you, hit, can you get, hand me that pot up there? And I was like, now I know why you brought me here. Because you needed me to reach that, right? So I, I go up and I get it for her and all that. You know. But there, there were so many ways my wife is so much stronger than me. Emotionally, in certain ways. In hope. Quite honestly, I, there's times in leadership I'm desperate or concerned or scared. And she has this, I know when she says, I don't know if we'll be okay, that, that's like a four alarm fire or something like that. Like, that's a big issue. That's red alert. But most times she comes in and says, when have we never been okay? When has God ever forsaken us? Never. So there's times she's, I'm the weaker vessel in many ways. And so I really do believe Peter is talking through just objectively, not domineering over, not utilizing your your size or the voice, um, but rather coming alongside. But notice there's an interesting word here. It says honor. And that same word is the honor it said for the emperor in, in, in 1 Peter 2. To honor her. Honor the woman as a weaker vessel. Don't look down on but rather elevate. To come alongside and elevate. Why? Because since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, they are co-heirs. They are of equal worth and value. They are a treasure. Honor her. You can read it, and people do, and abuse it as look down on her because she's weak, but that's not the point. In the same way, when Jesus in Philippians 2 took on the form of a slave and took on the form of weakness, it was then that the Father rightly exalted him. And in that exaltation, when wives, you come alongside and, and your husband um, is maybe even not yet a believer, or husbands, you come to your wife and you serve her and you're patient with her and you love her and you pray over her, and they come to faith. And as you unify along this beautiful mystery of marriage, our aim, men, should be to come alongside and to edify and strengthen and bless our wives and honor them before God. Because a husband's faith in Jesus is directly reflected by how he loves and leads his wife. You say you love God, but you're severe or abdicate with your wife, your faith is weak. A husband's faith in Jesus is directly reflected by how he loves and leads his wife. Ephesians 5, 31, 30 through 33, Paul's talking about marriage and he gives this clarification. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. That's written in Genesis. Jesus quotes that in the, in the Gospels and Paul's affirming that. Shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. This mystery is profound. But what, what does he say? And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Your marriage is a display of the gospel of Jesus or the gospel of something else. It refers to Christ and the church. Verse 33, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself, golden rule. Guys, do you want to be hurt by your wife? Do you want to be neglected by your wife? Do you want to be emotionally absent by your wife? Do you want to be dishonored by your wife? Do you want to be cheated on by your wife? Do you want that? Then maintain the same standard that you would have for her of yourself. Let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Look, ladies, even if he's not respectable, respect the office, respect the role that he is called to live into because you're respecting Christ. 
And guys, in the same way with an unbelieving wife or a wife that's rebelling, you love her and serve her. You don't say yes to everything. You lead her, but you don't get a weak spine and, and dump over. You lovingly stand up for what is right, for her good, and you walk alongside of her. In a community and culture in the home that is repentant, meaning that we're willing to admit our fault, that is understanding of our need for a Savior and our unified value before a holy God, we can then begin to live a life and have a marriage that is not only enjoyable, but even more importantly, honoring to the Lord. I know a lot of you are like, so give me specifics. What are five action steps to make my life happier? How should we split up roles? Make it better now, Pastor. But unfortunately, the Bible is written for all times and doesn't, doesn't have a whole bunch of real clear specifics on who does the dishes. Guys, dishes aren't below you. In fact, we have a rule in our house. If you cook, I clean. And I like dishes. I, I can knock them out. It's a process I can handle. As a pastor and as a business guy, there aren't many jobs that are ever completed. Dishes are one thing that can be completed, even though it's completely destroyed the next day. It's a foreshadowing, a small hint of what moms deal with. Amen? So, the better question to ask is not what does she have to do or what does he have to do, is coming together with an inventory of self-awareness and knowledge of each other and ask, how do my gifts and strengths serve my spouse in my home? So, in some homes, the lady runs the budget and the guy, you know, doesn't even know he earns or whatever. In some homes, the guy is predominantly at home and the wife's working or whatever. The question of that is really more towards in what ways are we able to live in such a way that he is able to lead as a servant leader and she's able to come alongside and help in a way that is honoring and elevating to her, that exalts her in her honor and value before the Lord, and that helps him to lean into the leader God has redeemed him to be. Listen, guys, I want to, if you're married, I want you to hear this. Young men, I want you to hear this. If you get married the way God views your family, you are the head. You're either a good head or you're a bad head. But you're called to be the head of your home. So for some of us here, we just need to repent. God, I haven't been leaning into that in a way that's loving, edifying, and respecting, and honoring my wife. And ladies, you can maybe need to repent, take some inventory, or in what ways am I usurping his authority or not allowing him to lead or honoring him in that office even though he's not living into it. And then sitting down with honesty and just saying, hey, here's, here's what I hope for our marriage. Here's what I want. Here are things that maybe um, taking some inventory. I need to apologize because I'm looking for you to be my savior. Fortunately for us, you don't need to save your husband and you don't need to save your wife because someone's already done that. Your job is as a tour guide and as a friend along the way and all the more as we see the day arriving. And so my ultimate wrap-up is this. The source of our marital perseverance, keeping going, is found in, our hope that we have, and found in the hope that we have in Jesus. The hope of His future return. The hope of His promises fulfilled. He is Lord. God gave His only Son, who was perfect and flawless, lived a perfect life, died a gruesome, horrible death on the cross that we deserve, was dead and buried by God's power. He raised Him from the dead, defeating sin, death, and Satan, so that anybody that believes in Him will not spend eternity separated from God, but be adopted into the family of God and be empowered by the Spirit of God and led by the Word of God so they might be active participants in the community of God and all the day more as we wait for him to return. And increasing trust in Jesus is absolutely key to a joyful marriage. And so before you go trying to fix habits or behaviors, begin realigning your heart on the Lord.
understanding his worth and value, deepening that, and then leading into the next steps of marriage. Let's pray together.